Hey y'all, it's me, Jade. Just a heads up, in this episode there is a frank discussion about sex, 5 minutes and 25 seconds in, and at the 2715 mark, Emmanuel, while quoting a line from his play, says a gay slur. So, if you're sensitive to either of these, feel free to fast forward through them. Okay, I was responsible, now it's time for me to freak out. Emmanuel is such a cool person. Working with him and learning from him has been such a fun part of my Howard matriculation, and I'm really stoked this interview with him exists. Okay, and now I'm back. Episode 8 of On Their Way is coming up, and remember, this is a WGC production. Emmanuel Elliott Key is an actor, singer, dancer, and writer who is committed to telling the stories of queer POC with the perpetual mission statement of Spread Peace and Love. He is a Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania native, home to Adrienne Kennedy, Mr. Rogers, the Big Mac, and the worst American accent. A real poll was taken to decide that. He has been a performer and writer his whole life, first inspired by movies such as The Wizard of Oz and Singing in the Rain, which capitulated his love of musical theater, ultimately landing him at Howard University studying musical theater with a playwriting minor. His queerness and blackness has given him a dissenting perspective on society, spirituality, and existentialism, which are what inspire him and his art. He fights for equal and widespread access to educational resources because he believes through education, nothing is impossible. Hey, Emmanuel, how are you? I'm doing so well. How are you? I am also doing pretty great. Okay, so I'm just going to start <laughs> off with, the, with the, the question I ask everyone when we start. Where do you come from and where are your roots? Okay, so I was born in Toledo, Ohio, and then I moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So technically, I am a, a Western Pennsylvania Pittsburgher. And where are my roots? My roots are in the world. Um, <laughs> I, I, I say that, I actually do say that all the time. I'm like, damn, if I could like give up my American citizenship and just be a citizen of the world, that would be amazing. But unfortunately, that's not how the world works. But yeah, so I'm just going to say my roots are everywhere. I'm very worldly. Okay. Okay. And how do you think, <laughs> you think your connection to the world, how do you think that's affected your, your work? I think that because I haven't like necessarily subscribed, this is a very like Aquarius thing in me. <laughs> I haven't, I don't subscribe necessarily to like one group or another. Like I've never been one for like extreme patriotism. Even when I was growing up, I was like, oh, I don't want to be like a boy or I don't want to be a girl or, you know, I never wanted to be a part of one group. So I think that always just made my perspective on the world very, what's the word? Like, I don't know. I could just never settle. I could never have necessarily one strong opinion on anything. I was always bouncing back and forth. I think that's the Libra moon. Okay. And what exactly is it? Could you describe for us and our listeners, what exactly is it that you do? Yeah. So I am an actor, singer, and dancer. Musical theater is what I've focused on. And I'm also a writer, mostly theatrical, but I've started writing novels and stuff now. So um yeah, and which is uh which is a journey, I might add. I don't think I don't <laughs> I don't know if anyone just like dives into writing a novel and for me I guess I was like, okay, I'll write the full thing in one sitting and then like go back and edit because that's how I write plays usually. Like usually I'm like in a cave writing a play for like up to like 6 hours and then I stop, go to sleep, cry, wake up and edit. And I thought mm-hmm. I could do that with a novel mm-hmm. and that I got, I think I got 40 pages in 
just noticed I hadn't had any water or gone outside in like four or five hours and just passed out. So uh, the novel is still in progress. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to get back to what you said earlier, but I'm just curious now. What is your novel about? Okay, so there are like nine novels going on at one time. So I'm trying to like focus it in. (laughs) (laughs) Essentially, it's just about intimacy between men and intimacy between queer men over like generations, queer black men and understanding love outside of intimacy, intimacy within love. And then just gen- general openness and trying not to be so callous and fearful. Interesting. Well, that does seem to follow some motifs that exist in your other work. For example, in previous plays of yours, which I've all had the privilege to sing, which is pretty amazing to me. But in previous plays <laughs> of yours, such as Jolie Garçon, Out of Clay, or Jesus, you all mm-hmm. sort of deal with this theme of intimacy, queerness, and then violence within that queer intimacy. And so I just yeah. want to ask you, Specifically, why do you think that's a motif in so many of your works? And how do you want to explore that in the future? Totally. I love sex. (laughs) I love talking about sex. I love like exposing my kinks and and, like talking about sex in general. But I think it's because growing up, I didn't didn't have any other like queer people in general Mm -hmm. my age or like especially queer men. And so I just felt very lonely and the only, the only like I discovered pornography when I was seven and that was because someone had called me the derogatory term for a gay person. And when I looked it up in 2005, what that meant, all that popped up was porn. So when someone had called me this, then my association with that for a very long time was just porn and was just sex. And so it was this physical intimacy. And so growing up, I didn't, and no one ever really tells you about like romance, <laughs> like gay romance. So it's all, it was like it's my, all sex. Yeah. it was all sex. And so growing up, yeah, I had to unlearn what it meant to be, what it meant to be queer and what it meant to be gay outside of just sex. And so I've experienced a lot of intimacy and violence and but also really great things and really great discoveries that all came from just this visceral reaction in my body that was like horniness and sex so I always love exploring that and I think it also is something that a lot of people can relate to but also it makes people very uncomfortable so I love pushing that envelope it does make people uncomfortable when I tell you because my mom has also had (laughs) had the privilege of seeing every single one of your plays (laughs) And when I tell you how different our reactions are, oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. But, okay, so are there other motifs that you notice in your work or other things that you want to introduce to your work in the future? Yeah. Now I'm okay with, like, not shoving sex in people's faces anymore. <laughs> I st- it still will always be a part of it, but I think I think the direction will not just be focused on sex strictly to make people uncomfortable. It will be in just like human relation and like our interconnectivity and things like that. I've been reading a lot of James Baldwin and like these romantic ideas of of how human beings form their own psyches and stuff. And so I've been really delving into that idea of just love and that sort of thing in a more romantic way rather than a more carnal, let's have sex on stage type of way. Mm-hmm. And you did bring up James Baldwin. And I was going to ask you about that because your Instagram 
is perpetually littered with James Baldwin quotes or his images. And I just want to yeah. know, can you just talk more about the connection that you found with James Baldwin and what he means to you? Yes. Oh my gosh. Okay. So Giovanni's Room was the first James Baldwin novel that I ever picked up. And it was because it was gay, of course. And it was French. And you know us. I understand. We Francophiles, you know? I understand. <laughs> you know, you know. It hits a lot uh, of buttons. Yeah. Uh, it hits all of the buttons and, and I, I just love it. But when I read Giovanni's Room for the first time, I was 18 and I had just come out of the closet and I think I got about 10 pages in and I just sobbed because he, James Baldwin had one written the lead character as this white man, this blonde white man. And I was like, why would I ever want to read a gay story written by a black person, but the lead character is this white blonde man. And then he describes David as um, he says, I have a face, I have a face that you've seen a lot before. And my ancestors like blew across a continent and like describing whiteness in this sort of patriarchal colonizing way. And then ties that back into his psyche. And he says, if I knew that the person I was running away from was the same person I was going to find in France, I would have stayed at home. And this, I read that like about a week before I ran away to Howard University. <laughs> and so I was just like sobbing and I, I just felt like his, the way he just writes how people are so tortured, but they're trying to get through life and their inner workings. I just find him to be so immaculate. And it's, it's crazy because I have, if I'm reading if Beale Street could talk right now. Mm -hmm. And I, I literally have the book open and I have, something highlighted that I just think I, I have to read. I keep you share. telling yes. people. I have read it to just about everyone. Um, <laughs> where is that quote? I'm telling you, I'm such a stan. I'm such a... As uh, it should be. It's James Baldwin, for goodness sake. It's, oh my God. He just, he writes things and I'm like, are you are you trying to insult me? Like, are you trying to punch me in the face? Like, you I came don't for get your it. whole life and then he stayed Literally. 15. Yeah. Literally. And uh, so he says, he's, so um, in Beale Street Could Talk, Alfonso Fani, or Alonzo Fani, he went to trade school and then he left. And he said, they say the kids are dumb. And so they're teaching them to work with their hands. Those kids aren't dumb, but the people who run these schools want to make sure that they don't get smart. They are really teaching the kids to be slaves. So that was one thing. And I was like, oh my God. And then literally <laughs> on the next page, he says, Fani had found something that he could do, that he wanted to do. And this saved him from the death that was waiting to overtake the children of our age. Though the death took many forms, though people died early in many different ways, the death itself was very simple and the cause was simple too. As simple as a plague. The kids had been told that they weren't worth shit and everything they saw around them proved it. I mean, I mean. Honestly. It's, honestly, it's wild. I mean, yeah. It's still relevant. It, it's still so relevant. And it takes me so long to read a James Baldwin novel because I go back and I read each chapter like four or five times before moving on to the next one because I just think that there are so many gems and he has inspired me so much as a writer. And that's like, like find, rediscovering him in this quarantine has really saved quarantine for me, to be honest. Oh. James Baldwin, still saving lives after he's dead. That's how you know he's a ghost. Ugh. 
okay, such a goat. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I'm going to ask some questions about some of your other disciplines that you work in. So can you just sort of tell me how you got into dancing and your background with that and what you're doing with dance right now? Yeah. So dance for me started with Beyonce. Um, (laughs) I just always loved her. I would dance in front of the TV with her, but then specifically musical theater was Singing in the Rain and The Wizard of Oz. I thought Gene Wilder and Gene Kelly and Donald O'Connor and these people, these like old hoofers, like very hammy, overdramatic men, Bilbo Jangles and Fred Astaire. They were so graceful and so elegant, but then also just having so much fun. And they really revolutionized that time of dance. And I just fell in love with the style, the art form, the expression. And that's what launched me into theater was like, okay, where can I do this? And then, and then I was exposed to musical theater and I was like, ah, I'm never going back, never going back. (laughs) So yeah. And now, well, I've been teaching dance since I was 18 and I actually teach like Broadway jazz and I actually start teaching again this semester next Tuesday. And I'll be teaching until, thank you, thank God, oh my God. It is virtual, which is nice because I'm moving to New York very soon. Um, Yeah, I know, I'll be there, I'll be there like October 10th, like between the 10th and the 20th. (laughs) It is, okay, and I said, I was like, I'm going to be in New York City for Halloween. That's gay Christmas. That is gay gay Christmas. It's gay Christmas. It's gay Christmas. So yeah, I'm very excited. (laughs) But yeah, I've just been dancing a lot, trying to reconnect with what really made me love dancing since I haven't been able to be in a studio or like partner dance with anyone or or do what I used to do. So I've just been recentering and watching a lot of old videos and rekindling my love because I have just felt so distant from it. And what does make you love dance? I think that you know, as writers, <laughs> I think that I focus so hard on communicating effectively and communicating correctly. I think that it's so hard to really get your point across. And so I try to use as flowery of language or as precise as language, but there's something about action and there's something about movement that, it, that words, that you just don't need them. Like you watch a ballet and you get the entire story and no one has spoken or the the dance that is told in a musical, even while people are singing or acting or whatever, the dance is, tells a completely different story. Watch a Fosse musical. <laughs> like, you know, you mm-hmm. see when, whenever you see Big Spender, oh my God, look at Big Spender and look at the way those women are just standing there. And it tells and you everything saying, you need to know. And it tells you everything. You don't even need the words of Big Spender because Fosse has choreographed so specifically how to get those men to give them money. And I think dance is ritual. Dance is the beginning. Humans, humans communicated with each other before language was set up through movement and through action. And so I think it's the clearest form of communication. Do you find that ritual makes itself present in your other disciplines as well? When I went to Howard University and, and had... Oh, yes, you and the Okay, oh, okay. Jade, I'm telling you, the fact that it is September 16th and I haven't had to crack open a textbook has made me nothing but elated. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, yes. 
yes, I am. I am an alumnus. I still haven't gotten my degree yet, but I, I know in my heart that I am an alumnus and that's all that matters. Yes. You did the work. I did the work. Okay. Um, <laughs> when I was reading with Professor Caldwell my freshman year, the hardest class I've ever taken, but the most enriching class I've ever taken in my entire life. And he just talked about like black theater, black plays, black art will always be steeped in ritual. And when I saw that, and then I went to Bada and I met one of my best friends, her name is Saive. She's from Mexico City. She said, the thing that's missing in Western theater is mysticism. And you all are so disconnected from what makes the world the world. And that's magic. And I was like, like what? <laughs> so, so that's that's what that's what really sparked the aesthetic of writing that I, I write from. I don't want things to feel real necessarily, because if I wanted a real experience, I would watch a documentary or I'd watch someone on the street. Yes, I feel the exact same way. Yeah, like if I'm going to the theater, I want to be I want to be dazzled because it's 3D and it's present and it's ever changing. And so to me, I'm like, I'm sitting in this seat right now and I want to see some freaking magic on this stage. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. I, when I write things, I want it to be parallel to realism. I don't want it to be steeped in realism. Okay, so that's interesting. So we can talk more about your plays later because Emmanuel, I could write dissertations <laughs> on the things that I can write. Stop it. But before we get into that, <laughs> before we get into that, I would like to know... So with writing, it's obvious how mysticism can flow in because you literally create the work from your mind. With dancing, it's understandable because dancing is magic. Mm -hmm. But with acting, when you're putting yourself into other people's worlds and other people's words, how do you incorporate that magic and mysticism that you enjoy in work? I think you just said it there. I think you're putting yourself into another world. If you've ever read a book to a child, like a picture book or... When I, when I taught dance, when the girls seemed like they did not want to do anything that day, we would just sit down and I would come up with a story off the top of my head and seeing how enthralled children were with just listening to a story. And I could just see that girl number one saw the colors in pink and girl number two saw everything in like cubism, you know? And I think that's what magic is. Mm -hmm. I think that's the magic of acting is that Whenever you transform yourself, you transcend any plane of reality and you step into a dream, which I believe more than fact, more than any type of concrete, it's our fantasies that really rule our psyche and rule our development. It's the blanks that we fill in. It's the cracks that we cement that actually make us who we are as people. That's why Disney has a hold on everything because Disney's not the media, it's not the news. They're just our first ever moments of magic and joy and they've cornered the market. We all know Mickey Mouse, Tiana, I love Coco. It's all because of the fantasy and the magic and that definitely comes through in acting. And I wanna talk about a acting experience that you had. So in the summer of 2019, you were in Passing Strange, yes. which is a musical. Uh -huh. Can you share what your experience was like in that musical? Uh, yeah. So yeah, I did it with a company here in Pittsburgh called Alumni Theater Company. And it was started by uh, a teacher. Her name is Hallie Donner. And she worked at this school that had 
all black kids and she just saw how talented the performers were and so from this one school she started like putting together little shows and stuff and then it became this huge thing and they not only put on musicals but they develop work so these are young performers from middle school sixth grade up until they're all still creating and they could be 30 40 years old doesn't matter because they're all alumni and they are creating work it was it's i i've ne- i had never been in such a space like that and so passing strangers a musical by Stu, and it's essentially about this kid who wants to be a rock star and he goes to amsterdam and berlin to discover himself and his writing and his blackness such a such a beautiful musical and I got to play three characters. I got to play this fervent reverend named Reverend Jones, I think. I think his name was, um, who gives sermons like a rock concert. And then I got to play this philosophy professor and part-time sex worker, which I think really is my aspiration in life. His name is Christoph and he's Dutch. And then uh, in Berlin, I got to play this performance artist named Mr. Venus, who was addicted to speed. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so what was it like working with three characters and developing those three individual people and making them lifelike? I think because my beginning of theater was the hams, the the movie musicals, I always start from this place of caricature. So I want, you know, Rev the Reverend. <laughs> I, I I looked at as many videos on YouTube. I looked at like the what what was that? Lambs, the ham, cram, tomato, potato, lamb ham dog hog what? chicken turkey do you remember that oh i got beans greens potatoes tomatoes oh, lamb tomato. yes. that one that i do know yeah. yes. i i watched that video and like delved into a lot of that stuff then i tried to connect it to the way the music sounded which was very rocky and then i wanted to tell that story i wanted our dutch philosophy professor and sex worker to just be like the most like you never know what's going to come out of his mouth. And I only had three or four lines, but it was memorable nonetheless. Those suspenders and crop top. And then Mr. Venus, of course, my favorite. I wanted someone who was so unhinged. And because he was a performance artist, I wanted everything he did to look like it was a painting or to look like it was some type of something, every action that he did. So that I'm, I, because I'm a dancer, everything usually comes from a very visual type of place. Is there a dream role you'd like to play? Uh, the leading player in Pippin. I, oh. Yeah, the lead, Yeah, the leading player in Pippin is definitely my number one. I want to play Hamlet. You'd be a good Hamlet. Uh, thank you. I, I need to play it soon. Oh, my God. I've been <laughs> itching. Yeah, those are probably my top two. Leading player in Pippin and Hamlet and Hamlet. And why those exactly? The leading player, when I saw Ben Vereen do it, I said, this is art. Ben Vereen with his hips told a story that betrayed what his mouth was saying, which informed the music that was behind him and the cast ate it up. When you see the original Ben Vereen, the first thing you see are his hands. And with just his hands, he's already won that Tony. And I study, I've seen that musical, that version of that musical probably like 30 times because I'm still enthralled by how someone could possibly be that that is magic. Ben Vereen, what he did in the, with the leading player was magic because he was a cult leader. He was a best friend. He was the ringmaster of a circus. He was a murderer. And he was everything that was and 
is theater wrapped up in one character. And Hamlet? I think Hamlet would be one of the hardest roles I would have ever taken on because Hamlet is the journey of a young man who goes from knowing that he will inherit the world, essentially, to watching that world crumble around him. And I think that it is this very interesting story of privilege in what happens when nobody listens and how our thoughts betray us, how other people betray us, and how power and family and all of it's just muddy and it ends in tragedy. Hmm. Okay. Now I'm going to transition back to your plays. So what's your favorite play that you've written? I don't have a favorite, but I think I, I think I learn and improve every time that I write a new one. So I'm going to say that out of clay probably is the one that is like, just sticks out in my head the most. Okay. And for our listeners, before we like get really into talking about out of clay and all the elements that went into making it a really cool piece of art, can you just tell our listeners what out of clay is about? Out of Clay is about a renowned fashion photographer and editor named He. And he is so famous that he has these three boys who stay in his house vying for his attention. And everything goes to shit when someone named Clay shows up and takes some of that attention that the boys wanted. It's it's a little bit of that, yeah. The the tagline <laughs> the tagline is that is the power he has. Honestly, yeah, no, that's that's a perfect tagline. Okay, so can you take us from the very beginning, the very first thought of this play to the actual production of this play? Can you just take us through what that process was like for you? Totally. I am obsessed with Andy Warhol. He's another Pittsburgh native. Um oh. yeah. Uh, he was obsessed with pop culture. He loved Shirley Temple. I love Shirley Temple. Mm. By the end of his career, people would literally live in his house and do his beck and call because they knew if they got a portrait done by Andy Warhol, they were going to be immortal. And so I feel like humans have this, we know that we're mortal. And so we're always afraid. We're like, how do we outlast? How do we outlast these very short years that we have on this planet? And what does that make us do? And I wanted to put three boys in a mansion who are trying to get the attention of someone who loves that attention, but also could do away with it so easily. And so I wrote it and it was still in development actually. And that was probably at the height of my, like, I want to make everything sexually uncomfortable. Oh, you did that, but we'll do it, continue. Yes. And so I wrote it and I submitted it for the 8x10 play festival with Howard Players. And because it was the third line, uh, you can bleep this out if you want. The third line is, <laughs> fags are fickle, honey. Why do you think I'm off grinder and on scruff? And I think <laughs> when, that is, when that is the third line of a 10-minute play, I, I didn't expect it to get chosen because I was like, this is really gay and really vulgar and really like out there. And so I was like, I'm going to write whatever the hell I want. And then we got chosen. And I wanted Sage Fortune, my best friend, to direct it because I didn't want to direct it because I didn't want to make it too porny, you know, because mm-hmm. I definitely mm-hmm. would have. Um, and so I was like, do with it what you will. And, and she did it. She did that. <laughs> she really did. 
she she did a fantastic job. Yeah. So you wrote the play. You were clearly very close to the play. And you also acted in the play. So you can kind of tell me what it was like acting with your own words in this world that you already thought up and created. So originally, Duran was Michael. And Michael was such... <laughs> okay. One, I love Duran Goodwin. <laughs> when oh, I... yeah. He's, He's cool so guy. amazing. Uh, two years ago, he played Jolie in Jolie Garçon. And mm-hmm. the word muse came from Duran Goodwin. Because when I was writing Jolie Garçon and directing him in it, I was like, this kid is beautiful. This kid is pain. And I want him to have everything. <laughs> so him along with Christian Ellis in that show was just beautiful. And then when I wrote Out of Clay, I went directly to him and I said, I want you to play Michael. And he was like, okay. And I sent him this script and he was like, all right, I, I got you. And unfortunately he wasn't able to do it in the end. And so I had to take over, which was... I didn't, I hate writing characters so close to myself. Um, and, I, and I did not notice that Michael was so close to me until I had to say those words and act it out, which then gave me the challenge of like, okay, now don't play yourself on stage or don't play your anxieties. So it was fun to step out of it. But uh, at first I was like, oh my God, this is... <laughs> and can you just tell me more about, because... Again, like in all the plays that I've really seen, I usually see a lot of violence and not like simple screaming or yelling or saying hurtful things, but like legitimate physical violence for our listeners. In Jolie Garçon, the play ends with one of the love interests strangling to death his love interest and out of clay, Emmanuel, who plays Michael, well, Michael, who's played by Emmanuel, Michael (laughs) slashes his face open and he's, and he's There was there was an abortion that was done with a coat hanger that actually turns out to be a demon that's coming out of this. It's very I, I'm still Correct. trying to process it. It was years. I'm but, still um, trying to process it, and I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> I really am curious about where they came from inside of you. But in all of these plays, you have really distinct physical bloody carnage happening on stage. So can you just sort of tell me why violence is something that you want to and constantly do portray? on stage yeah it's very funny because i am a pacifist <laughs> like, i've never been in a fight i'll get in a screaming battle very quickly but i have no intention of fighting anyone ever but there's something i went to an all-boys catholic school for high school and there was something about this carnal need to to hit each other and touch each other and then when i met Stu, who wrote passing strange he said boys only fight because they want to touch each other and we don't let them touch each other and like blew my mind yeah completely blew my mind and so I think that with especially with men we fight and we we scratch and we and we bite and everything only because we are always restricted from touching each other the only way we can touch each other is when our emotions are that high and out of clay there's so much distance despite the fact that everyone is supposed to be these like sexually open and like, you know, soups, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it's, it's the, it's the free love of people. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's this There's emotional distance. Yes. Yeah. It's this infatuation with the human form, but then you keep that human form at a distance because you still find it somewhat ugly, still find it somewhat grotesque. And that's why Michael decides to, yeah. Cut his face. Cut his face open, yeah. I really sincerely wish that those were videotapes so that other people could see them. 
because an experience there is there is a video yeah i can send it to you if you want please do please do we'll talk more about this offline i got you (laughs) (laughs) so i also just want to talk about i know a lot of your work does focus on men from what you've explained it's completely understandable why that's what it's focusing on but for instance with jesus you did focus more on women like the lesbian experience so how do you sort of right from places that aren't your own experience as a queer black man. Yeah, I think it's that that idea I started with. I've just never felt like I was a part of one group or another. And so I was always just infatuated with people who don't look like me. Okay, admittedly, in the past week, I have become a BTS stan. Oh, Emmanuel, <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. I was gonna yes. Ask, go ahead. Talk yeah. about it. Talk about um, it. Talk about it. I am obsessed with BTS and I'm obsessed with K-pop. I think that BTS and K-pop are bringing back disco, which is what I have been waiting for my whole life. I have a thesis. It's, it's the time. It's the time. <laughs> it's the time. We're in a dystopian. We are in a dystopian present. So I think we need disco to save humanity. <laughs> I believe um, I really do. <laughs> but I, I've always had an infatuation with, with Asian culture and Eastern culture and aesthetic because it was so far from me. It was so distant from me. And I don't think that we focus on it enough in America. I think that the history of, of race as we know it in the Western world, is really black and white when there's so much more. And so I've fallen into this love of K-pop because I was like, oh my gosh, these aesthetics, the the humor, the everything is just so different. And I think that's what I attribute to most of my writing. And I think someone once said that they feel like my plays are voyeurism. They always feel like you're watching at a distance, but you can touch it but you're not supposed to. That and is a very accurate description, yeah. I, I, I thought I was writing from first person, but... <laughs> so I think that that's how I feel about the world. Like, I have felt so detached from the world that all of my writing really does feel like I'm looking in. And sometimes it can feel like, a, like looking in on a Petri dish, which then I don't like because I don't want to feel like I'm fetishizing or anything else like that, but... Also, I think it does give that distance and that parallel realism that I search for. Mm. Well, I have a few questions. I'm going to start off with this one. So uh, as someone who's also into Mm K-pop, but also I'm really glad that you're a Jimin stan. Personally, I love (laughs) Namjoon, but but we won't get into it. But um, I love them all. They're really great. And they dance so well. But we'll we'll talk again. We'll talk about this at a different different time. But so as someone who does like, Asian culture and Korean culture specifically. How do you stop your infatuation and your use of their aesthetics from dipping into the realm of exoticism rather Mm. than just a simple appreciation? How do you keep that line? Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that. I love that. I think that it's all about making it human. Felicia Rashad said that to me. I'm going to name drop, you know. No, Um, (laughs) no. We we had a master class with her and I asked her a question and she said, make it human. Like I asked her, how do I write it so... It can be for myself, but for a widespread audience. And she said, just make it human. And I was like, I oh, wow. That. I was there. Oh, were yeah. you? Oh, my God. Straight, I went yes. home and cried after that. But it's fine. I, I understand completely. It was a moment. I sat next to her. It was a good time. <laughs> She's ethereal. <laughs> but I think I'm such a fangirl that everything, the way I look at a lot of Harry Styles or K-pop or Beyonce is very, like, exotic and, like, oh, my God, they're so perfect. They're so beautiful. da 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 So then when I write from a perspective, I have to go against that completely and I just have to make it human. 
yes, these boys are, I don't know how they could possibly dance and look the exact same while also having such distinct personalities. Like, how do you do that? Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know but I get really, really invested, but go ahead. Oh my God. I get so into it. I've been watching. Oh my God. I can't even talk about it. Um, but yeah, I think that I just want to go against, I like, I test myself and I just go against myself all the time and saying, okay, you can't just write an a- Asian character because you like want an Asian character. What is the humanity behind him or behind her or behind them? That's how I do it. I, I just question myself, I guess, all the time. And what kind of research do you do for your characters and your worlds when you write them? As you know, I am a language junkie. So usually it actually starts from there. I like reading. I like listening to poetry. I like listening to the way that people speak. I like learning cultures through their language, through their movements, through their history. And so, like I said, when I build a character, usually it is from, in the same way of writing, it's usually, it feels like a ballet before words get put to it. And out of Clay, I, I said about like 10 minutes into writing the script, I was like, I want one of the characters to slash their face open. And in Jolie Garçon, I was like, one of those characters has to die at the end. Mm-hmm. So that's usually how I write my stuff is I, I say the beginning and the end and I, I, I map it out physically and then fill it in verbally. And so again, like you're, you're very young, you're in your early, early 20s. Mm-hmm. Where do you see your development going as a playwright? What do you at this point in time think your magnus, magnum opus will be? Totally. Uh, I just always say spread peace and love. And I know that that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily seem like it connects to the shows that I've written. Mm-hmm. But I think, uh, no, literally, but I think that it's when I saw this play and I, but I was so young and I couldn't even remember. And at the end, everyone fell over. And I was like, why did everyone fall over? And then they just stood up and they bowed. And I was like, what the hell? That seems weird, you know? Cause it's like, did every, everyone just died? Like, how do you just stand up and bow and say, thank you? Oh my gosh, it's so nice to, you know? But now I like uh-huh. live by that. I live by that weird, I don't know. I think my my opus, that, that word that you said, <laughs> I think it's, I think it, it will be um, just that complete, absurd, magical, something something that people go and see specifically because they're like I'm not I'm, I'm not going to see his plays because I want to see like any type of contemporary realism I, I like they I want people to go see these plays and leave and be like okay so the random woman running around covered in blood that might have been very weird but like where did that come from like well you know I guess I just don't want people to feel like they have to I I I just don't want to go to the theater and always see realism. And I guess that's also why I love musical theater so much because I break out into song and dance everywhere I go, but not everyone else does. And I think that that escape from realism is something that I will always carry through my work. Well, I look forward to watching more of your plays, but we are now winding down. The interview is getting to the last question. So, Emmanuel, yes. you are a, a really wonderful human being. You're oh, doing gosh. really cool things. And I'm so excited to see what you're going to... Wow. I'm so excited to see what you're going to do in the future. Ooh. But since the future is the future and it's not here, I just want to ask you, mm-hmm. how will you know when you've made it? Jade Madison Scott, I will never make it. And that's what's really, really exciting. I always tell people... 
at the end of the day, I just want to be a dad. Like, and I <laughs> literally, like, I, I just want to have 47 kids and 90,000 grandkids and all that stuff. I think when I just, like, have kids, I'm going to be really happy. And I know that that's a lot of pressure on them. So, like, I'm, <laughs> like, I don't want it to seem like that. I think I just want to give as many resources to as many people as possible. I wrote down what I want my real legacy to be, passing a playwright, passing an actor and a dancer, what I want my real legacy to be. And I'm not going to say, because hopefully we'll find out at the end of my life uh, what it is. But I just want to give and give and give and give and give. That's all. I don't care about awards and I don't care about recognition. I just want as many people to experience humanity, education, and truth as much as possible. Because as a person, like I said, who's never felt a part of any group, I've had so much, I think it's just this amazing ability to not judge anyone and to just explore everything. So I want everyone to feel that, you know? Oh, that's so sweet, Emmanuel. <laughs> so lovely. Okay. <laughs> so could you tell so could you tell the listeners where they can find you in your work? Yes. Okay. So I do have a new play exchange and you can find me at L-K-E-L-L-E-K-E-Y. Um, it's the same on Instagram. It's the same on Twitter. Uh, I have I have a Wix site as well. You can find that in my Instagram bio as well. And there you can find short stories, poems, excerpts of plays. That's actually where you can find the video of the full version of Out of Clay if you want to see that. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even some like visual things like paintings I've done and like the Emmanuel experience. Emmanuel experience. So yeah, keep an eye out. And you have just finished episode eight of On Their Way, a WGC production. On Their Way was created, hosted, and edited by me, Jade Madison Scott. The theme was composed by Baggio Alvarado, and the logo was created by Amaku Corey. Please leave us a review and rating on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WithGoodCo. And tell your friends to tune in next time. After all, in a land of ears, word of mouth is king. If you really like this episode and you want to support us financially, consider buying our merchandise at our website, wgcproductions.com. That's how we keep everything up and running. You can also find this episode's show notes and transcripts at wgcproductions.com. If you're an actor, dancer, singer, or playwright like Emmanuel, those show notes will come in handy because we know we like to sneak in some resources just to help you out, just to, you know, do our part. Once again, thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next week. Take care of yourselves and tell the people you, you love that you love them.